0: Welcome to Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. This is the series where we hear how world-changing research is taking place here today to shape our tomorrow. It's sort of like hearing ideas in action. Our research stretches across society, health, the environment, sustainability, politics, and technology. But in this series, we're looking closely at how it helps us better understand our planet. Today, Dr. James Darling, takes us out of this world in order to get a better understanding of life on Earth.
1: I'm a reader in Earth and planetary materials at the University of Portsmouth. My research is really related to planetary geology, studying the origin and evolution of planets.
0: He's asking the biggest questions on all of our behalves.
1: We're touching on questions about how our planet came to be, how it can support life, why other planets cannot, and are we alone in the solar system? By studying our own planet and materials we have from other planets, we can start to investigate some of those
0: challenges and problems. John Worsey interviewed him to find out how we can interpret the secrets of the Moon, Mars and other planets to understand some of the biggest questions challenging modern science. We'll also find out how data that's so widely available today is putting a rocket under innovation and advancement in this field.
1: We answer questions with more questions
0: in this (laughs) video. Yeah. It's enchanting to look at the footage of robots exploring the moon and Mars, and magical to look up and spot a satellite passing across the night sky. But they're not all there to spy on your Tuesday night trip to the supermarket, you know. James explained how the scientific community is sharing data to inform understanding and ideas across the disciplines.
1: We're very lucky to be part of some really big human endeavors in terms of planetary missions. So obviously the work we're doing is tapping into or feeding information into NASA exploration, European Space Agency, Mm -hmm. Chinese Space Agency. Um, And all these bodies are, are going out there not only to test scientific hypotheses, but also to develop technology. There's a huge wealth of data from planetary exploration. So both from satellites orbiting other planets and also robotic exploration. So on Mars we have you know a whole series of rovers that are providing imagery that mm. you can pretend you're in the field looking at the rocks. And so yes, I'm, I'm loosely involved in some of those missions as well to try and extract as much information as we can from those robotic missions about particularly the Martian surface. Yeah. When we were able to get hold of a sample, we've got a rock from space, a meteorite or a return sample, a lot of what we do is, is probing it with different types of energy, so it might be using electron beams or beams of light for microscopy, firing lasers at it, firing ion beams at it to sample its chemistry. All of that happens, though, on a very, very small scale. So mm. a big sample for us is a few centimetres, it's been right. that way. Wow. And so we don't need a lot of material to extract a huge amount of information. The benefits of the modern laboratory techniques is that we can extract you know, micron scale, so much smaller than one of your hairs, mm. we can extract enough data to change our understanding of a planet, potentially.
0: Space, meteorites, asteroids. Why do these kinds of rocks have such an impact on what we know about the history of planets and their timelines? My
2: understanding of an asteroid would be that it is, it's basically a, a fragment of presumably what was at one point a planet somewhere in the universe that's been, you know, separated, chipped away and is now being pulled through space on a fairly random journey that might then be drawn in to the Earth or into the Moon or into Mars. Yes,
1: you're absolutely correct. But there's a lot more variety in asteroids Uh than I might expect. Some of the material that formed before planets in the solar system. So in other words, the material that came together to build the planets. So when we look at some of the most primitive asteroids, essentially we're all built from them, right? So all of the material on Earth came Mm. from asteroids, including the building blocks of you and I. Yeah, Um, We are built from space rocks at some point. Studying asteroids is very exciting for lots of reasons. Firstly, to understand planets, like we've been talking about, and how they've evolved through time. But also to understand where planets came from, what they were built out of. Mm. Are there materials out there that can deliver water, and there are some... Asteroidal materials with amino acids, for example. So there are you know, specific comets and asteroids out there that contain basic ingredients for life. And so you can conceivably find a way that you can kind of concoct a bacterial life form from the material in these
0: rocks. James says that looking at the geology of planets can give us insights into their histories, not only of those planets, but also our own.
1: We just simply don't have a record a good record on Earth of the first billion years or so of our planet's history. So to access that record, we have to look elsewhere. And the moon is an excellent place. It's very close. So just to understand that early part of our planet, we have to look elsewhere. And that's important then for understanding, for example, how did our early oceans form? How did the early crust that we now live on kind of come to be? Were meteorite impacts responsible for completely sterilizing the planet on multiple occasions Mm. or not? The materials that we have that are up to billions of years old give us a unique record of how each planet has evolved through time. And by reading that record, we can start to think about how life may have developed, the conditions on each planet has changed, and how the geology has evolved through time and controlled lots of other processes. The Earth has been reworked by plate tectonics and erosion throughout its history, so the surface we have today is very young, whereas if you look at, for example, Mars or the Moon, The surfaces of those planets are very, very ancient. They're billions of years old, so there's been very little erosion and reworking. So we can look at the surfaces of those other planets and learn a lot about, potentially a lot about, the early Earth as well.
2: What is it about those planets that enables us to understand whatever changes occurred to their surfaces happened far, far further back in the past than the Earth's? Is that, again, down to what we can tell from samples that we've gathered just looking at traces of elements and so on in in those materials you you can you can see that Mars for example hasn't suffered the same sort of recent schisms as, as we have.
1: Yeah so we've known for a long time if you look at Mars or the Moon you know the surfaces look very different to us. Hmm. first um, and particularly the Moon is you know covered in impact craters you know it's pot marked with holes you can see them from Earth you don't even need a telescope you can see the dark mare infilling impact craters and the same is true for Mars so you can Already there's a big difference there. Following the Apollo missions, which went to the Moon, brought back samples, we started to realise those craters, those surfaces were very, very ancient, billions of years old. Um, So now we have that kind of benchmark. We, We know that what we're looking at when we look at these planets is a very early stage of their history compared to walking around England on much, much younger rocks.
0: So understanding what happened to planets billions of years ago, can give us vital clues to the past and help us make projections about the future of Earth. But science never sleeps, and as the methods of analysis improve and evolve with new research, it's important to challenge even our most trusted beliefs. That's exactly what James did when he got hold of some returned material from NASA's Apollo missions. Working with an international research team, What they uncovered turned the status quo on its head.
1: Apollo discovered that a lot of the impact craters that we see on the Moon, this pop-marked surface, seem to have formed in a fairly narrow period of time. Subsequently, over the last 50 years, people have been trying to understand what that means for how not just the Moon, but the Earth as well, responded to meteor impacts. Was it a force for just destruction, or did it actually contribute to the changes to our planet through time? Some of the big questions involved, how did the lunar crust as we see it form? How did impact craters, did they change that surface? Mm. And what we were able to find in that study is that a lot more of the Apollo material we realised may have formed because of huge energetic meteorite impacts in big melt sheets. So molten rock sitting basically on the lunar surface after Mm. an impact event. And that could have had a much bigger control on the the geology of the Earth and Moon than we realised previously. A lot of the lab work was done in Portsmouth, building from techniques that my group have developed in, in our laboratory using an electron microscope. We've developed techniques for looking at the structure of minerals within materials at you know, very, very small scales. Mm. And so those kind of specialist techniques were used in this study. So that a lot of the data was collected in Portsmouth using our facilities, a lot of the ideas it came from our group as well, including the, the first author of that paper was a former Portsmouth PhD student who graduated just a few years ago.
0: Tipping long-held beliefs upside down, the team concluded that not all those craters were formed by massive meteors hitting the moon's surface. But how on earth do you figure that out from a few pieces of moon rock?
1: Then we're trying to understand the whole lunar geology from these samples that were picked up from the surface. In terms of distinguishing whether something formed in a massive meteorite impact melt sheet or in an intrusion like we would see on Earth, very little would survive. The temperatures are so extreme that basically everything would be molten and you, you have no record of which one of those two processes was responsible. So what we were using was the zirconia, which has an almost uniquely high temperature stability it not only can survive through many thousands of degrees C, but it records structural changes through that process as well. Mm. So you can actually find evidence that it's been to uh, a very, very high temperature structure. In this case, actually, cubic zirconia, which lots of people know from jewellery. Uh-huh. Um, it's actually the same structure can be found in nature, but only in extremely high temperatures, Right, uh, 2,300
2: degrees C. In terms of the implications of what you, what you found about the way in which these impacts were affecting the evolution of the crust, what, what sort of implications does that have for the Earth itself in terms of how we might reframe our understanding of historic meteors? You, you alluded to you know, possible sterilisation of, of uh, the environment and so on.
1: Yeah, so I think if we take that, that lunar study as part of the bigger kind of project that we're involved with, hmm. we try to understand when and how meteor impacts affected the Earth. Yeah. By looking at the re- impact cratering record of the Moon and of Mars, we are able to put time constraints and understand the processes that happened. What that means, essentially, is we're able to constrain the sort of timescales over which planets could have developed life.
0: But shaking up lunar science isn't the only thing on Dr Darling's agenda. He's also wondering, was there life on Mars?
1: So we've got projects ongoing with Mars, Uh, quite a lot of work at the moment. And we're also working on asteroids, which give us another Ah. sampling of the early solar system, little fragments of planetesimals that broke up in the first few hundred million years of the solar system. So we're working on asteroids, working on Mars. We'd love to be able to work on other planets, but we don't have any rocks. If you're a rock person, uh, then Venus and Mercury at the moment are a little bit challenging.
2: Yes, that's fair.
1: Hopefully one day. One thing we're trying to do is to better constrain the geological timeline for yeah. Mars. So actually put some real radiometric age constraints on when things happened on Mars. Right, and, and we still actually don't know that much about, for example, when volcanism happened on Mars. There was clear evidence for oceans and water on Mars, but we don't know exactly when that stopped being a surface feature. The other aspect that I'm involved with is the kind of robotic exploration of Mars, the search for life, essentially. Yeah. So. Some of the rovers, including the ExoMars twenty twenty-two rover, will be going there specifically to search for signatures of life. So by understanding the geological context for where that rover will land, we can contribute to that mission and contribute to targeting of where you know the robots will search for yeah. life. For the first maybe billion years of its history, Mars maybe didn't look that different to the Earth. Right. It had had volcanoes, it had oceans, it had what looked like rivers. It clearly had surface water. So at some point, possibly around three and a half billion years ago, the Martian atmosphere was degraded to the point where the water started to be lost. The surface environment became very hostile to life. It now has a carbon dioxide rich atmosphere. It's irradiated by solar radiation. It's not a nice place to be, but for a while it probably was quite a nice place to be. So the, the aim of those missions is to go back and look in those ancient rocks when we think Mars was quite a reasonably good-looking planet and see if there were you know, signs of ancient life there. The prospect of, of modern life is very remote, take, right. but uh, from a fairly ignorant perspective of a geologist rather than a biologist.
2: Sure, sure.
0: Hold your horses now. If you were wondering if our current climate crisis looks set to turn us into mini-Mars, there's no need to panic just yet. Even if what we're learning from other planets informs our understanding of geology and planetary evolution, a whole host of other conditions make Mars uniquely Mars.
1: A lot of it's atmosphere for reasons related to the magnetic field and solar wind. You know, it's, it's a very different environmental problem than, yes. than we have on But at the same time, I do, I do take the point that there's always something to be learned about, you know, extreme environments. There are, you know, Bacteria living in superheated hydrothermal vents on Earth. Possibly there are environments and there are ways in which you know life could survive in these mm. very very, very hostile planetary environments as well. How much we can learn about the Earth, I'm not really sure. In terms of our near future, hopefully we're talking billions of years before mm. we have to worry about yes, uh, Martian atmospheric
2: conditions. Fingers crossed, that's a positive positive note. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And there's more exciting news for how the science looks set to advance in the short term. There
1: will always be that next level of discovery. I think in in the next tens of years, we should be able to piece together a very, very clear understanding of how the Earth, at least, came to be the planet that we know today. This is a really exciting time for planetary exploration. The number of missions that are planned, uh, you know, we've got three Missions on the way to Mars, NASA, um, Chinese Space Agency, and United Arab Emirates all sending oh, yeah. new robotic missions to Mars. There's the European Space Agency mission coming up in 2022, which
2: I'm part of. Right.
1: You know, NASA are gearing up for crewed missions to the moon again. The prospect of new exciting data is, is almost infinite right now.
0: We can't wait to hear what fascinating insights are yet to come and what solutions those ideas might offer in the future. You can find out more about world-shaping research from the University of Portsmouth on our website, port.ac.uk. And you can find more episodes of Life Solved on this podcast feed. We're taking a short break and we'll be back in two weeks with a special series looking at how our futures and lifestyles are set to change for good as a result of the coronavirus pandemic.